right. Well, hey, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Numbers chapter 16. And if you don't, that's okay. You can read along on the screens this morning. We are continuing our series called Dwell. And we're looking through the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy at some of the most fascinating stories in the Old Testament as the nation of Israel was wandering around the wilderness seeking to obey God, but failing to do so very often. And so each story each week is just really fascinating. You can really see a a great insight uh, into the human heart. And so we're going to continue today with Dwell in Numbers 16. Before we do that, let me pray and ask the Lord to bless his word as we seek to learn from his word. Let's pray. Jesus, again, we're so grateful to be here this morning. I pray that you would truly speak to us through your Holy Spirit, through the word of God. Lord, let your words transform who we are, change the way we think about ourselves, change the way we think about each other, and change the way we think about you. Lord, would you truly get honor and glory in that process? Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week uh, we saw probably the greatest rebellion of this whole journey, right? I mean, the Israelites, God brought them to the brink of the promised land. They were ready to enter and then they completely, they just chicken out, essentially, right? They rebel, they, they get fearful of going into the land that God promised to give them, and so they rebel against the Lord, they disobey, and now they are sentenced by God himself to 40 years, 40 years of wandering around the wilderness. Everyone 20 years old and up will not get to enter the promised land. So what do you do after something like that? How do you move forward? What do you do? What now? Well, number 16 is where we are. Let's begin in verses 1 through 3. This is a little bit of a lengthy story, but it is really fascinating. So we're going to kind of go quickly here. So just follow along either in your Bible but or on the screen might be even easier. So number 16, verses 1 through 3. Now, Korah, the son of Itzar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, And on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with the number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? All right, let's stop right there. So so this man named Korah and his three associates are clearly upset with the way things are going, right? They're not happy with Moses and Aaron's leadership. They say, you've gone too far, Moses. We're not following you anymore, right? So what do they do? They get a bunch of people together, says 250, 250 chiefs and well-known men. In other words, they go find 250 of the most influential people of this massive nation, right? They rally the troops. They convince these others to join them in an all-out mutiny. That's what this is. It's a mutiny against Moses and Aaron. But why are they so upset? I mean, Moses led them, right? Through God's leading, they, they got to the brink of the promised land. It's their own fault. They didn't want to obey the Lord as we saw last week and take the promised land. So what are they so upset about? Well, verse three, I think tells us. Notice Korah says, 
that everyone is holy. And Moses and Aaron are exalting themselves above everybody else. Okay, here it is. This is it. Korah and his crew. See, here's what you need to know. They're from the clan of Levi, okay? They're from the clan of Levi. So the Levites were chosen by God to have special duties in assisting the priests, all right? So they had a really cool job as people worshiped through the tabernacle process. So that's a very important, that's a very special role in the daily life and worship of Israel. But Korah is not content with that. He wants more power. He wants more influence. He's not content with the role God has given him. He becomes jealous and envious of Moses and Aaron. And interestingly, Korah is Moses and Aaron's first cousin. So there might be a little family rivalry, jealousy there. Korah wants to be a priest like Aaron. You see, God has already appointed who the priests are. But Korah is taking this one truth, one snippet of truth, everyone is holy, he says, but what is he doing? He's twisting it. Yes, yes, every Israelite was holy in one sense, right? In other words, everyone had been set apart by God to be a nation for him to spread light to the rest of the world, but not everyone in ancient Israel was able to be a priest and approach God directly behind the curtain as we've been studying about and talking about. So, so this jealousy, this jealousy that Korah has to be a priest, to go behind the curtain, it leads them to do what divisive people do. They lie and they manipulate, right? And what do they do? They, they rally people together and bring others down with them. They pretend to be concerned for everybody's well-being, right? Well, everybody's holy. I mean, we're speaking on behalf of the whole congregation here, right? But what are they doing? They're really just manipulating these other 250 men for their own agenda. And that's not all. They also try to appear morally superior to everyone else. They speak in spiritual terms. Well, everyone's holy. The Lord is with us. We know what we're talking about, right? And then they falsely accuse Moses and Aaron, right? What, what, what's going on here? This is, this is just clear, clear characteristics of people who seek to be divisive. So this is a big deal. How is Moses going to respond? Look at verse 4. Number 16, verse 4, we'll go through 11. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And you got to think, like, poor Moses. <laughs> He's trying so hard, and these people just don't get it, do they? Right? Moses, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning... The Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, here now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Now, this is perfect response from Moses because he is so right. 
He calls out Korah for just being jealous and wanting the same power, wanting to be the priest, wanting to rule over others. He calls him out. He says, no, you guys have gone too far. You're not content with the role God gave you. So it's really against the Lord that you have this problem with. It's not me. It's God that you don't like. So Moses' response is immediate trust. Trust that the Lord will show and prove to everyone else who actually belongs to him. But notice, those are strong words because Moses is essentially, he's implying that some of y'all don't belong to the Lord. I mean, that's what he's saying here. He said, the Lord will show us who is his and who is holy, meaning some of you are not. But Moses shows a good godly response, right? He's not afraid to call them out. He speaks the truth. He says, you've gone too far, but he's also trusting God's method for working this out. He states the facts. He exposes their discontentment. Moses isn't afraid to say, your real problem is not with me, it's with God. So that's Moses' response. Now he wants to talk to the other two, right, who are mentioned, that are repeated here again, Dathan and Abiram, the co-conspirators. Look at this, verse 12. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. So Moses is like, well, let's get together and talk. Nope, we don't want to talk. Verse 13, is it a small thing, they say to Moses, that you have brought us up out of, the land, out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? That you must also make yourself a prince over us? Oh, come on, really? <laughs> Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. In other words, we don't want to talk to you. You see, this rebellion is really starting to show its true colors. They blatantly reject Moses' request, right? But notice the exaggeration. Did you, did you see this? Did you catch that? Where are they referring to as a land flowing milk and honey? Egypt. The place where they were slaves. How twisted has their thinking gotten, right? How, how silly is this? They falsely claim that Moses drugged them out to the wilderness to kill them, they say. And that he wants to be a prince over them. Really? Come on, guys. Like, you could just insert the eye-rolling emoji right here, right? That's it. I mean, come on. Give me a break, right? But again, who are they really upset with? They're really upset with God. I think verse 14 proves this, right? Like we saw last week in chapters 13 and 14, they just had their chance to go into the promised land described as a land flowing with milk and honey. But they didn't want to do things God's way. They wanted to do things their own way. So this is silly nonsense, right? So will the Lord prove, will the Lord prove in his own way who is really true and right here? Absolutely, he will. He always does. Skip down to verse 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. When God tells you to clear the area, let me, say, let me tell you, you better get out of there, right? You better leave. The Lord is the final judge, right? And his ways of affirming who is with him and who is not with him are strong. Look at this, verse 25. Then Moses rose and went to Datham and Abiram and the elders of Israel followed him and he spoke to the congregation saying, depart please from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs lest you be swept away with all their sins. So Moses rightly warns the congregation to not associate with these people. They are about to be judged by God himself. God is warning them himself, right? Verse 27. So they got away. <laughs> 
They got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. See, Moses isn't being prideful here. He's just saying what is actually true. This is good, humble leadership. He's giving God the credit, but he's also standing firm in the mission that God's given him to do. Verse 29, if these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Now, we read this and we think, whoa, what what in the world just happened, right? God miraculously decided to declare right here, right now, who actually belonged to him. The holy God and creator of the universe who created people to love and worship him decided to make it clear that we should not play around with his holiness, that taunting the Lord God is not okay, that mocking God's appointment and his mission, that mocking his leadership, that saying, I'm not content, Lord, with what you've done, And we're not going to fulfill this great role in human history that you've given us to play. No, God says, we will not, we will not deal with this. He puts an end to it. God himself squashes this mutiny. He puts an end to this cancerous division among the people who are going to ruin the pursuit that God has given them. This is bigger than they can see. The purpose that God even chose these people was so that they could establish themselves in a pagan world, a lost, dark dark world, so that God could have people to show the rest of the lost world exactly what he is like, to represent his goodness so that people can be saved and come to know him in faith. But these people are failing miserably and the Lord is not going to allow it to continue. He removes them. He removes them. So everyone... At this point, you would think everyone's finally learned their lesson, right? Well, look at verse 41. But on the next day, the very next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel, guess what they did? Grumbled 
right? Is that in sermon bingo? Grumbled? I mean, it should. Come on. You know, like that's all they do. This is all the Israelites do. They grumbled against Moses and against Aaron saying, you've killed the people of the Lord, right? Oh, come on. So maybe these people, these, these people that are still grumbling and, and misinterpreting these events, they clearly don't see that God is the one in charge. He's the one that is going to make his people holy so they can represent him so that one day the Messiah can be born in this family, right? They are not innocent bystanders. There's still a cancerous rebellion going on here. So what's very clear now is that if you stand, right, for the, for the people of ancient Israel, if they were standing with and alongside these divisive people, they also are going to suffer the consequences. Verse 42, And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. The people who God rescued from the plagues in Egypt are now bringing plagues on themselves. Verse 47, So Aaron took it as Moses said and ran into the midst of of the assembly, and behold, the plague had already begun among the people, and he put on the incense and made atonement, atonement for the people. He paid for their sins. Verse 48, and he stood, Aaron, the great high priest of Israel, stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting and the plague was stopped. Time and time again, this wilderness, in this wilderness, we see God graciously providing for his people when they're hungry, providing for his people when they're thirsty, providing for them when they're fearful, providing for them when they're confused, giving them everything they need to thrive, to bring him glory. He provides a way to know him. He provides a way for them to know how to love him, to worship him, to be a light to the rest of the world through their good obedience and witness. But time and time again, it's never enough. It's just never enough for them. They always reject God's plan. They always want something else, something more. And this incurs God's wrath on them, his judgment on them, especially the ones who are the ringleaders of these divisive revolts. So the story today is just another example of this this rebellion, this disobedience in their hearts. But what 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 in the world could be the practical application from a story like this in our modern day context in Jacksonville in 2023? I'm glad you asked. Well, I I think, right, I think one of the biggest lessons to learn from this story in particular is is the topic of division, right? I mean, this was a mutiny, essentially, and and Korah, they were very manipulative. They're they're trying to rise up because they're jealous and, and, and they are intentionally seeking to cause division among God's people. 
Clearly, Korah and his company were dissatisfied with Moses' leadership, but there's really something deeper going on. Serious division among God's people is is not necessarily a common thing, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be prepared to handle it, or better yet, just avoid it altogether. In the New Testament church, you see a lot of division often. Different things are happening in different ways, but the Apostle Paul says something in the New Testament. This is over a thousand years later, over a thousand years after Israel were rebelling against God constantly after number 16. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in the first century in the New Testament to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Be united, he says. So today, I think, I think we should spend the rest of our time today thinking about what happened in number 16 in the congregation of Israel, thinking about Korah and his divisiveness and the other people who stood alongside him, And then we look at what Paul says. Hey, New Testament church. Hey, Kernan, 2023. Let there be no division among you. Be united with the same mind and the same judgment. So how can we maintain unity in the church? That's the real big question we want to ask. How to maintain unity in the church? Three things this morning. And by the way, these three things are not exhaustive. Okay, this isn't like all the things we could say about maintaining unity in the church. This is just specifically points that we draw from our text today. And I also want to clarify, this is not, um, this is not a current issue here at Kernan, by the way. Um, there's no perfect church. If you've been, ever been to another church, you know that's true. But I just want to say that, yes, I do. I do really believe that as a whole, the vast majority of our church is absolutely uni- unified. I really do believe that, seriously. But So I'm not like addressing this to you in some like sneaky way, okay? But, but it's better to be proactive about these kinds of things than reactive, especially when we come across these kinds of things in the sermon series that we're in. So, all right, number one. All right, how to maintain unity in the church. All right, number one. <clears throat> we must deny our selfish ambition, okay? We must deny our selfish ambition. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 says this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him make a big deal about himself, <laughs> right? Let him stand up to Moses and say, you've gone too far, right? No, let him deny himself. These are the words of Jesus himself. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, visible, like visible, divisive conflict in a church usually appears to be over something like a preference or a disagreement about the way a situation was handled or something like that. It could literally be over anything. It could be, you know, maybe you're not happy with the style of music that we sing, or maybe you're not happy with our beautiful green carpet that we have, right? Or maybe, uh, maybe you're not happy with how long the pastor preaches. You know, it could be anything, right? It could really be anything. <laughs> but the real, that was supposed to be funny, and you're like, no, it's not funny. Um, <laughs> but the real, the real problem starts The real problem starts in our own hearts, right? It always kind of appears to start as something like, kind of trivial, okay, whatever. But the issue is there's always like this feeling of discontentment. 
that starts in our hearts. The conflict is never as surface level as it appears. For Korah, what was it? It was a pride issue, right? For Korah, it was his pride mixed with a good dose of jealousy. He had been given an important role to play as a Levite. He had an important role already in the congregation, but he wanted a higher position of influence, right? He probably didn't feel as respected as his first cousins, Moses and Aaron. So he made it all about himself. He grew discontent. He got a bunch of people together and told them a bunch of lies, most likely. For us, our underlying selfish ambition may be the desire for more influence. It could be the desire for more respect. It could be the desire for more comfort, or this is always a big one. It could be the desire for more nostalgia. We remember the good old days of whatever when we used to do this. Why aren't we doing that now, right? But the real issue here, the real issue here is that ultimately we are discontent with God and where he has us. We want more or we want something different. Divisive people are discontent people. I feel sorry for them because their personal lives are probably very discontent. And that's why they're being divisive. The frustration in their personal hearts and lives are just bubbling to the surface in other ways. Divisive people are always discontent people. But the discontentment ultimately is with God himself. Lord, I don't like where you have me in my life right now. I'm not happy with the things you've given me, right? Korah was too blind to see this. And he was also too blind to see all the blessings around him that the congregation already had from God, right? If we start to feel, if we start to feel our selfish pride and ambitions creeping up in our thought processes, we've got to keep coming back to this truth. The church belongs to Jesus. It's not ours. It's not mine. It's not yours. The church belongs to Jesus. So let's keep it about Jesus. Let's keep it about what he has told us clearly, what he wants, right? Not us and what we want. Now, there will be things. There will be things that happen in a church that you know you may disagree with, and that, that's fine, right? There's, there's some things that it's okay if we disagree about these things. It's fine, right? But it's a simple matter of, if it's a simple matter of preference or opinion, right, don't, don't make it a, a large hill to die on, right? Now, also, listen, just to be clear, you can leave one church and go to another church, and I got news for you. The grass is not greener on the other side, <laughs> Okay. Some of you probably have experienced this in your past. You'll quickly find something there that you're discontent with, right? Because you carry your sinful discontentment wherever you go. Let's not be like Korah. Let's not be like Korah and his company. Let's deny. Let's deny ourselves, as Jesus said, which means let's deny our selfish ambitions. All right, number two. That was the most negative one. All right, we're past it. All right, here we go. Number two, we must be a team player. We must be a team player. Now, this kind of goes hand in hand with number one, right? Now, think about it, all right? Here's your reference, Trevor Lawrence and the Jaguars. There it is, all right? So, here's the deal. Play the Steelers today. Should be a good game. Now, here's the thing, though. Every single person on that field, on that team, has to do their part. They have to do their part, or you've seen it before. You can easily collapse, right? If the offensive line's not blocking... If Trevor's having a bad game, if the wide receivers are confused and not, not sure what routes to run, right? If the defense is just slacking, right? Everybody on the team has a role to play in a particular position, and when it all comes together, it works really cool. But boy, if some of them are doing their own thing or confused or not sure, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. 
you know, I think a microcosm of the church working together as a team is a, a wonderful example is Friday night at Trunk or Treat. I mean, we had people working at the trunks. We had people serving on the bounce, or not on the bounce houses, but, you know, helping kids on and off the bounce houses, right? We had people driving the hay rides and helping kids and parents get on and off the hay rides. We had people passing out candy and bags and greeting people. And I just, I mean, seriously, like, isn't that beautiful? It's just really cool to see the team effort of everyone coming together here at Kernan to do something like that. And that's exactly what it takes. But that's what Cora couldn't see. Korah and the Levites that he rallied together had already been given their duties, their responsibilities in the congregation. And imagine how different this episode would have been if they were just happy. <laughs> like if they were just happy with what they had been given to do and, and simply fulfilled the roles they had been given, if they had seen themselves as part of a larger team, their roles would have been so important and so successful. But they lost track. They lost, they lost track of the overall vision and direction the Lord had given them. You know, Paul talks about this. He talks about this team mentality in the church world in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Classic passage on a church working together as a team. Look at this, verse 14 through 20. Paul says, for the body, and that's us by the way, so the body of Christ, the church, does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make, any, make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense, where would be the sense of hearing? When I think of, every time I read that verse, I think of uh, Monsters, Inc. You know, the green monster, you know, Mike, the, he's just an eye. If the whole body were an eye, right? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. In other words, listen, I don't know. You may be the nose, you may be the ear, you may be the eye, you may be the pinky toe. It doesn't matter. Whatever you are in this church, we are so glad you're here, and guess what? You matter. You matter. It takes everybody to glorify God in the way that he has asked us to worship him, to walk in community, to be a witness in this world together as a team. Everybody has a role to play. Everybody's looking to, everybody, everybody role, everyone's role, I should say, is, look, is going to look different. You know, some people's roles are gonna be a little more behind the scenes, and you may think, I don't even know who set this up, but I'm so glad they did right? I don't even know who, who put the coffee out there this morning in the cafe, right? I mean, I know who did it, but I'm saying you may not know, right? <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? Like, who did that? Some, some of these things are going to be behind the scenes. Some will be more evident. Some will be physically draining. Some will be more emotionally draining. But guess what? They're all important. They really are. One of our, one of our core values here at Kernan is we serve the needs of others before our own. And we do that well. We really do. This church, you guys do that so well. No matter how you serve in the church, it's important, right? Whether you're greeting someone, whether you're teaching a community group, whether you're the person cleaning up the cafe after the service or putting the coffee out there at the beginning, it doesn't matter. Whether you're out there serving with the kids on Wednesday nights, whatever you do. Ephesians chapter four, Paul said it this way. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up 
in love. The body building itself up in love by each person doing their part. That's exactly what Paul's saying. So let's not be like Korah and his company. No, let's pursue the vision God's given us with passion, with clarity, with wisdom. Let's make disciples in Jesus' name. And let's do that together. Number three. Lastly, we must unify around the gospel. We must unify around the gospel. This is the biggest part. You see, for Old Testament Israel, the clear word of the Lord should have been their top priority. God had spoken to them. He had, it wasn't like God was confusing, right? Like God told them what they should do, okay? He was very clear. Korah's rebellion then was ultimately against God's own word. Korah's priorities were totally out of line. And as we've already seen, they were completely self-centered. But for us today, here's what we have to do. We have to keep our hearts and our minds focused on what really matters. We must rally around, we must unify around the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection. In fact, our first core value at this church is we keep the gospel first. We keep the gospel first. I mean, there's a lot of other things that are important. It's not like we're saying we're not willing to talk about other topics and issues. Of course, in their proper places, in their proper times, absolutely. But number one, if you get sick of hearing it, then you don't understand it and you don't love it. We talk about the gospel a lot. We talk about Jesus Christ. We talk about his life, his death, his resurrection. We talk about his teachings and well, how he has commanded us to follow him and love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul affirms this priority. He says, for I delivered to you as of what? Second, third, fourth? No, first. First importance, what I also received, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let me tell you, the most beautiful thing in this earth, in this whole world, is the gospel of Jesus Christ because it can bring people together who otherwise would essentially, according to the world's view, according to the world's standards of society, would have no business doing things together. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings everyone in this room together around the table of the Lord in a way that nothing else in this world can do. There is so much division in our world today. I mean, all you have to do is turn on the, the local news or the national news for two seconds and you see it. You see the division. You see the strife. You see the anger. You see the hatred. But when you walk into the worship center at any gospel preaching, Bible believing church in this world, when you walk into the room they're meeting in, whether it be a house, whether it be a field, whether it be a church building like this, if they are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, what you see are people who have laid down their preferences, who have said, I'm tired of the division of the world. I know that our God reigns, that Jesus Christ is king, and that he has brought us together for a higher purpose and a greater mission than we would ever understand ourselves. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings us together. And you can just look around the room. You just talk to people. You can find out all of our stories. We all have different stories. We all have different backgrounds. We come from different places. We live in different neighborhoods. And praise God for that. The gospel of Jesus Christ 
Him living the life we should have lived, but we couldn't because of our sin. Him dying the death we should die as a penalty for our sin for you. He did that for you. He substituted himself in your place. Him raising from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death forever to give you, to give you an eternal home with him forever. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And it means everything. It means everything. It's the only thing that can repair the brokenness of this world. Numbers chapter 16. To go back to our story, if you look at verse 47 and 48 again. So Aaron took it as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. So after this whole episode had happened, Korah and his company had been uh, separated. They'd been swallowed up by the earth miraculously by God himself. Aaron runs out into the middle of the people because a plague is starting. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. So in the old sacrificial system, they're having to do things that we don't have to do today. And I'll tell you why in just a second. But the high priest of Israel, Aaron, the one who could walk into the Holy of Holies, directly into the presence of God, what does he do? He runs in the middle of the people who are suffering from this judgment of God and he stands between the dead and the living and the plague stops. Jesus Christ, as he hung on the cross, stood between the dead and the living and the plague of sin was stopped. In Christ, in Christ Jesus, there is no longer any division between us and God. You want to talk about unity? Because of Jesus Christ, because he rushed into the middle of our sin, because he put himself in the middle of our plague that kills us. He stood between the dead and the living and said, do not live in death. Move from death to life in me. In Christ, there is no longer any division. We're no longer half, we don't have to be separated from God forever. If we reflect on this, this reconciliation, this unity, this peace between us and the Lord, how could we not reflect that unity and peace that we have with God himself? How could we not reflect that to each other? That's the beauty of the gospel. It, it, it compels us to love one another because out of gratitude, we see how greatly we've been loved. We are united. We really are. As a church, if you're a member of this church, let me tell you something. You are united. As a family, really, you are spiritually united by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing, there is nothing that should ever change that or could change that. We are united to Christ forever as the body of Christ, the universal church. We have been given a seat at his table. All Christians who've ever lived in any century have been given a seat at the table of God and one day will gather in heaven and feast with our Lord. Ephesians chapter four, verse one through six, Gunnar read it earlier in worship for us, says, therefore, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul speaking, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Have you found Jesus Christ? Have you accepted Jesus Christ to stand between your death and the eternal life that you so desire? Jesus says that no one comes to the Father except through him. In other words, we cannot be reconciled to God and live with him forever. We cannot know him and love him as we were created to be if we have not truly turned away from our own doing, our own work, our own rebellious heart, our own divisive nature, and humbly cried to the Lord Jesus, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need you and I trust you to be everything I could never be.